Fearscape Media Network, exploring the unknown, one podcast at a time. Hi friends, this is Kelly with Wishful Drinking and Binge Thinking the podcast where I get just absolutely hammered and I dole out psychological advice. That's right, I am going to be more drunk than that girl you met in the bar bathroom after your karaoke set who said, you have such good stage presence, oh my god. That's right, zero preparation, multiple drinks, countless profound gems. Tune in the last Monday of every month on Fearscape Media Network. There are phenomena that exist all around us. Kids kids playing above something and above something unknown flies over and disappears. People driving at night seeing huge creatures cross the road. People waking up to find their cabinet door ripped open in their kitchen. Strange things strange things happen every day around the world and seemingly at the same time and area. But are these occurrences but are connected? These occurrences connected? This, this is, is what we are here, here to explore and are, trying and are trying to understand. Join us on our journey, Join us to, uncover on our journey to uncover what we call the, the Convergence Enigma. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another fantastic episode of the Convergence Enigma with Josh and Stefan. This is our season finale. Boy, we are excited today. I am your host, Stefan Gerhardt, and I am joined, as always, by my favorite co-host in the whole wide world, Mr. Josh Rutledge. How are you, sir? You know, I'm doing great. I am really doing fantastic. Uh, that's why I wore my fantastic shirt. It is very fantastic. And speaking of fantastic, for our season finale, we have the one and only Dr. Lynn Katai on the show, author of the book Phoenix Lights and producer of the documentary that's just absolutely phenomenal and just who I would go to for anything Phoenix Lights. How are you, Dr. Lynn? I, it is such a pleasure to uh, to visit with you and your audience and actually set the record straight. Um, there is so much mis- and disinformation about what's become the most witnessed, most documented, most important mass anomalous sighting in modern history, if not all of history. And it's it's mind boggling. The story itself, as it unfolded, is fascinating enough. But to be part of this, and I stayed anonymous after the mass sighting for seven years, even though I'm the only one with 35 millimeter, prior to, during, and after the mass sighting that has been analyzed by military and university optical experts, and no one can tell me what what it is. They cannot be explained or denied. They're in the negative, which is really cool. Plus the signature video from the night of the uh, mass sighting. But there is so much more to this story that uh, you know, I'd love to share a little bit of it with your with your yeah, audience. I, mean, your- I, I went to uh, <laughs> just a few weeks ago, went to UFO Congress uh, out in Mesa. Uh, you were there. Uh, I unfortunately did not get an opportunity to meet you while you were there. Um, but uh, uh, Stacy, what's Stacy? Uh, right. right. Thank you. Stacy yes. Wright. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. From MUFON. He gave a presentation where they talked about a lot of the timeline of the Phoenix Lights. <laughs> and it makes me wonder... I mean, how much uh, how much <laughs> is really different? Because when people hear about the Phoenix Lights, they think lights in Phoenix, but it's so much more than that. There is much more to the story than even uh, ufologists, UFO experts know, unless they read my book, which right. is a 750 page right. journal that I squeezed down to 230 wow. pages and finally came forward in 2004. But um, the, the, man, the, the Phoenix Lights actually started for me uh, in February of 95, two years before the mass sighting. And if anybody is near their computer, uh, which you probably are, and can get to the uh, photo page on the Phoenix Lights Network website. Uh, first of all, the Phoenix Lights Network website will come up first if you Google, Google 
uh, Phoenix Lights Network. Um, it is packed with information. I wanted to get, get as much information as I could out there for people to just explore and consider, not trying to convince anyone of right. anything. But as a scientist, I've tried to be as scientific as I can with the data. As a physician, I wanted people to know that uh, they're not alone. Even though most anomalies can be explained, only a small percentage cannot. But just because we don't have the technology yet to definitively define what these things are, it doesn't mean they're not real. We may just be looking on the AM dial for an FM frequency. So it's time <laughs> to get this topic open. And I'm thrilled that the military and government are finally coming along with that, even though they've been hiding it and, right. and uh, right. have a modus operandi for um, for 70 years. I mean, since his 40s, actually the late 40s, um, stigma and ridicule and uh, discrediting has been part of the scenario with this topic. But it's time we get it out in the open and address it, accept it and study it so we can find out not only who's driving these things, but move forward in our own evolution. And yeah. uh, yeah. the Phoenix Lights itself, before I get into the details, it affected people at such a deep level. Um, there has not been one, very important to, to uh, part, not one report, credible report of harms, threat or abduction associated with the Phoenix Lights UAP. Can't speak for other things, but I can for the Phoenix Lights. If anything, it was just the opposite. And if we have time, we'll get into that. People were in awe and in wonder and just curious. I still have people emailing me and, and messaging me on Facebook, Phoenix Lights Network mm -hmm. page on Facebook, that they feel blessed to have yes. had the experience. <laughs> and that doesn't happen with planes and helicopters and streetlights right. and all that kind of stuff, uh, and, or flares. Um, but at any rate, it's all started for me, and I always go back to this first sighting in 95, February 6th the eve of my birthday. Lots of coincidences and serendipities. It just happened to be the eve of my birthday, which was kind of a, a really good <laughs> gift, I have to tell you, because yeah. um, that really opened me up to all of this. I had no interest or knowledge. Healthy skeptic, one must be open when you're a physician for anybody walking through the door, um, but had no interest or knowledge in this topic at all. And I actually was in a bath in an adjacent room to our bedroom, which we're pretty high on a mountain in Paradise Valley. And for anybody out there that's listening, um, we call it the Valley of the Sun and surrounded by mountains. And we're pretty high on a, on a mountain range and have a panoramic view of the city skyline. If you go on the photo page on the Phoenix Lights Network website, you'll see topography of our part of our view that looks towards the airport South Mountain is behind the airport and a few miles back are the Australia Mountain Range, which become significant because if you look at the data and get, again, in science, we look for repeatability and over and over and over again, these UAP keep popping up right where South Mountain and the Australia Mountains intersect. And another little coincidence I'll, I'll share before I get into the details. Six months before the mass sighting, I was invited to present at the Gila Bend Indian Reservation. They have one school and um, they don't really talk to outsiders, but I helped out the principal and I called him after the mass sighting six months later to say, you know, these these phenomena seem to be appearing in your area. Did anybody see strange lights on March 13th? And he started to giggle. And I said, is that funny? He said, are you kidding? We've been looking up at them for centuries. We call them sky people, light mm. beings. I had no idea. Yeah. That's part of the whole scenario. Uh, native cultures worldwide are very open to these phenomena, not only out there, but visiting us. In fact, the Hopi right here in Arizona have protocols to invite these phenomena in. And that's how the Australia's got its name. It means star in Spanish, gateway to the stars. There's petroglyphs up on South Mountain that are yeah. similar to the Phoenix Lights as well as he said that they feel that there's a gateway or portal in that area. And again, look at my photo data, <laughs> they seem to pop up there. But at any rate, on February 6, 95, my husband happened to be standing, one wall of our bedroom is a window. So anything that pops up out there, we get to see. And he was on the phone with my mother-in-law back east in Philadelphia, where I was born and raised. Uh, to wish me a happy birthday and suddenly and he never sounded alarmed I have to say uh, he said what the hell is that get over here quick and I jump out of the bath wringing wet go to the window dripping a little below us and I have to describe we're nestled in a mountain range 
It, it is very private. It is gated. There is no way this was military. But a little below us, there were very treacherous desert landscape were three amber orbs, one on top and two closely aligned underneath. And I was like, whoa, what is that? And anybody out there that's had an experience like this um, doesn't want to move. <laughs> you don't know how long it's going to last. So I tried to take everything in mentally, the size, the shape, the color. They were about three to six feet each. They were oval shaped, which is interesting because the Nimitz pilots, the Navy Nimitz pilots now describe their tic-tac, oval shaped objects that they're, they've been videotaping yeah. and seeing. Um, I don't know if it's similar phenomena, but nonetheless, they were oval shaped. I call them an orb because the light does not go outside the edge. It was self-contained and it was a uniform amber color throughout. And I thought to myself, okay, if I don't get a picture of this, no one's going to believe it. And I collect sunsets. In fact, on the photo page at the bottom, there are two separate sunsets, November and December of 2000, that have actually a massive rod-shaped object in both pictures in the same mm -hmm. month, a month apart that I did not see when I was taking the pictures, but nonetheless, they were there. At any rate, I go running to the closet to grab my Instamatic camera, a Canon Instamatic that I kept handy for the sunsets. My husband calls me back. He says, get over here quick. One of them is disappearing. And again, I always get <laughs> excited because the top orb, without budging from the two underneath, started to shrink very, very wow. slowly, mechanically, as if there was an intelligence behind it. It's really hard to, to describe in logical terms, like a dimmer switch almost. And until it was pea size and then disappeared, but it felt like it was still there. Yeah. Where did it go? I jumped out on the balcony from a sliding glass doors that's perpendicular to the big window and got a picture of the two lower orbs. That's on the photo page. And immediately noticed an eerie silence as if time had stopped. It was just mm -hmm. bizarre. And as intently as I was looking at these two lower orbs, and I did not admit this to assault till two years later after the mass sighting, it felt like something was watching me and going through my mind. I was thinking, who are you? What are you? Do you know that I'm here? I'd love to meet you. That's exactly what I was thinking. The next thing I remember, the left bottom orb started to shrink, just like the top one did. And I quickly got a picture of that. That was the only one that turned out at the time. But for me, it was confirmatory that we did see something really strange and it was there. I mean, it's in the negative and in the picture, but I didn't even know who to show it to. So I wondered for two years what this advanced technology was. And this is data that people, that unless you read my book or, or uh, hear me to, at a presentation or like today, which I'm so thrilled that I can share with your audience, don't know this. I did not see anything remotely close to the, these closed orbs until two months before the mass sighting. I got up to the bedroom. And I noticed that three amber orbs, giant in a distance far west, are in an equidistant line formation. And I watched them for minutes. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, they're amber. They're mad. They're huge balls of amber light. They're in a formation. And I watched them as they seemed to shrink again uh, and, and implode, I guess, from right to left. And they were gone. The next night, my husband was at a medical board meeting. He's a physician as well. And he was on several state and hospital medical boards. And I get up to the bedroom. I notice the same three lights in an equidistant line are now in front of South Mountain. And I knew they were in front of South Mountain because there's red blinking lights on top of the map to alert planes coming into Sky Harbor that there's a mountain there. And I thought, okay, enough. I'm getting my video camera. So I run downstairs. I get about 18 seconds worth the battery goes dead and it was charged. So I go inside, I hook it up, it's about eight o'clock. About 8.30, my husband comes up our drive and we're pretty high up here in the mountain. And I go outside and I said, honey, remember I told you about the three lights, huge amber lights in a row last night, in a row, about a half an hour ago, they were right in front of South Mountain. As I'm pointing like this, they reappear in the same spot. I was like, whoa, I gotta get a picture of this. Luckily, again, I don't believe in coincidence anymore, in video, if anybody's seen the video, and there's only a handful of videos, it doesn't do the lights justice. 
They're much smaller, they're white, they flicker. Nonetheless, if you really study them, the formations themselves are very compelling. But 35 millimeter, they're in the negative. They wow. cannot be touched or manipulated. Anyway, I get out on the balcony. I'm just ready to shoot the three. Suddenly, six lights across, massive span over a mile wide, pop up above the three. And it was so <laughs> unnerving not having an explanation for 95. It was like, whoa, is this a mothership or a fleet right. or something? And it started to shake, okay? And that first picture of that series in January of 97 is wavy because I was shaking, okay? But I kept my wits about me and I kept clicking away. The second picture to me is a smoking gun because it looks like a V, okay, of five lights with two underneath. Well, two months later during the mass sighting, Thousands of people would describe what they saw as five lights in a V formation with two trailing lights. Mm. Mind mm. you, this is two months before. And yeah. as I'm shooting this head on, it seemed to turn, okay, and, and turn into a V shape. Well, did not sleep well that night, but I thought, got up in the morning, there must be a logical explanation. And actually, as the lights were disappearing underneath the night before, I ran in and called the Arizona Republic. And I said, got an operator. I said, you got to get somebody out there quick. There's strange lights in front of South Mountain. And somebody's got to get a picture and tell me what it is. By the time I finished finish my sentence, they were gone. So the first call I made was to the Arizona Republic the next morning. And I said, did anybody see strange lights last night, um, uh, you know, in front of South Mountain? She got off. She got right back on. She said, nope, nobody called. Well, I know I called. So I said, well, we did see something strange. I even got pictures of it. Um, I just trying to find a logical explanation. She said, sometimes Luke Air Force Base sends experimental maneuvers out they don't tell the public about. That sounded reasonable, right guys? Right. So I called Luke Air Force Base. I tried to be very professional. I said, my husband and I are both physicians. We live mountainside in Paradise Valley. We saw some strange lights in front of South Mountain last night. Do you have any idea what they might've been? And from the get-go, she had an attitude and she said, well, they didn't come into a airport, they didn't come out from here. So we had nothing to do with them. I said, well, be that as it may, we did see something. I got pictures of it. I'm just trying to search out a logical explanation. She said, well, you said it was near the airport. So maybe they saw something there. Aha, now it was a mission. So I called the FAA, get them on the phone, tell them the same thing. The gal was really, really nice. She said, there was a group of air traffic controllers there the night before that did see something strange over class B restricted airspace. Here's where it gets really interesting. I said, can I possibly talk to one of them just to confirm it's the same thing? She leaves me hanging for about five minutes. Finally, not only an air traffic controller, but he was also a meteorologist and a climatologist gets on the phone. He was more excited than me. He said, did you see the six light words distance from each other hovering in information last night at 830? <laughs> I said, I'm calling. He said, actually, they were three at eight o'clock. I said, I saw them too. They popped up over class B restricted airspace. There's a 30 mile radius around the, the airport. Anybody that comes into that airspace, particularly a thousand feet altitude that these were, and they were closer, they were less than five you know, miles away, must call into the tower and no one did. So they immediately looked on radar, did not show up on radar both times. They got the high-powered binoculars to look, and in his own words, there were six points of light totally equidistant from each other, massive span over a mile wide that seemed to be attached to something. But they couldn't quite see what these lights were attached to or had a force field holding them in rock-solid formation. And you would hear this again two months later during the mass sighting from thousands of witnesses. And he said that as a meteorologist and a climatologist, that the entire thing turned as a unit against the wind. Mm -hmm. Very important data. Elevated slowly and then moved in synchrony, as he called it, behind South Mountain. So I said, so what was it? And he said, beats me. I said, you're an air traffic controller. You're supposed to know what's in our airspace. <laughs> he out, and there was a whole group, guys, up there that saw this. They ruled out every conventional aircraft, balloons, Chinese lanterns, flares, even skydivers with lights. We stayed in, in contact. I continued seeing these lights and feeling compelled to document them on film up until and including March 13th. Unbeknownst to me, when thousands of people were outside 
as myself, looking up at the sky at the Hale-Bopp comet that was very clear in the northwest sky, when they also got a glimpse of mile to eight mile wide. Okay, I know that, that Stacy is, is very well informed, but there this is this is data that people don't know. Um, Peter Davenport of the National UFO Reporting Center, who collected, I mean, if, just look at his site, it's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. um, hundreds of reports and drawings and all that shared at the 20th anniversary that one of these objects was eight miles wide. And we're talking these orbs that seem to be attached to something or actual craft. And that's another thing with the missing disinformation. You probably heard that it was one or two events and uh, it was only a couple of hours. No, 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 no. The mass sighting started at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, daylight sightings in Arizona. Five o'clock hour in New Mexico, there were Native Americans that reported the same exact phenomena. Set but seven o'clock hour and beyond in California, 10 o'clock hour, there were two commercial airline pilots who called into radar to inquire about this craft that was covering Las Vegas with lights, a blazing giant lights. Mm-hmm. And the, and the, uh, all the, the sighting continued yeah. all the way until at 3 a.m. there was a call to the National UFO Reporting Center from an alleged pilot from Luke Air Force Base. Very detailed, very professional. We have some of the recording in the documentary so people can hear straight on that jets were sent out from Luke Air Force Base. And we have civilians that saw this with their afterburners blazing, trying to intercept and get gun camera film of one of these craft that cover that was actually over 7th Avenue and Indian School mile wide craft and as they got close the lights dimmed and then the entire thing blinked out and he said that he helped one of the pilots out of his craft because he was so shaken up by it and that Luke was on lockdown after that but the sightings continued all the way till 5:30 the next morning a Boeing crew and I heard it straight off from the head of the crew were coming into Sky Harbor and one of these over mile wide craft was covering their tarmac. So we're talking over a dozen hours, four states, okay? And now I've heard some, also some reports from Texas as well, but for sure, four states at least. And we're also talking about multiple craft and multiple things happening at the same time. If you go on the website, Phoenix Lights Network website, and look up the GAP page, GAP, Geospatial Animation Project. There was a 12 year study of hundreds of reports. Two or more people had to see the same craft to be in the study. And it was concluded after 12 years of meticulous research that there were 10 different craft. Now, whether it was one craft, and if you look at the pictures, the illustrations by Larry Lowe, they're beautifully illustrated and there's animations there too. They look really different. Now, whether it was one craft that could morph into looking different or the perspective from where the person was standing or a parade. And ultimately that was what was concluded that the Phoenix Lights was a parade throughout four states in over a dozen hours. And, um, you know, if you wanna jump in now and ask some questions because the technology itself, just to to give you an idea, not only were these craft massive and just gliding very slowly, silently, over people's heads, like rooftop level. Some people said they could have thrown a rock at it. We have very credible people, nurses and pilots that were right underneath these craft and, and looked into what they called a well or a, or a um, cylinder of spinning energy. Some people saw these orbs detach from the main object, go out into the environment and then redock with it later. Is that what happened in 95? I don't know. I'll leave that to you to decide. Other, <laughs> other people saw one of these crafts split in two and then shoot straight up. Um, and and it, it's just incredible. And, and other people just saw it take off at blank speed without even dispersing the air. Not a sound. Mm. I mean, the, the technology itself, just the technology, we have not heard about at all or seen. And you would think with the precarious uh antics happening worldwide that whoever had this technology would show their prowess right right? 
So anyway, that's that's a little bit of the story, and if, and there's so much more to the story. But I can tell you the highlights after this, which are really interesting. If you'd like me to. Yeah, and so now correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. Kurt Russell was one of the pilots, right? That oh, had reported. Oh, oh, okay. You got you got ahead of me here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The I, morning after. Well, okay. I'll give you another thing. You're going to like this. Okay. <laughs> two, two weeks before the mass sighting. And my husband was getting a little annoyed with me running out and taking pictures and all that. <laughs> so I thought, you know what? I've got to show this to somebody, right? So I started showing the video to my friends. And this is how close I was to anybody in the top. I knew nothing about this topic or anyone in it. A friend of a friend had a neighbor who had a friend who knew the past president of MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, which I had never heard of before. And I called him up. I told him that I had been seeing these lights. He had not heard about it, but there were other people that were seeing them and documenting them on film like I was. One person, Steve Blonder, actually invited Mufon up to his balcony the night of the mass sighting, and they caught a, an arrowhead of five lights. I mean, just look at that wow. footage, you guys. I mean, it's it's amazing. Those lights are attached to something. or have a force field holding them in rock-solid formation. At any rate, he refers me to a field investigator for the following Wednesday who calls me on Tuesday to say the then state director wanted to be there, but his mom passed on Saturday. The funeral was Wednesday. Could I postpone? It was like, oh, I really want to find out what's going on here. The only window of opportunity I had for another two, three weeks was Friday morning at 10 o'clock. He said, fine. I knock on his door. He opens the door. The first thing he says to me is, did you see the mass sighting last night? I was like, whoa, I said, I saw something similar to what I saw two months ago. In fact, I spoke to air traffic controllers the morning after and I called them this morning because it looked like the same exact phenomena over the same exact location and it confirmed that it was. They also stated that there were a couple pilots that called in. A commercial pilot on departure who called into the tower to say, what the hell are these lights over me? So we're talking right over the tarmac, talk about mm-hmm. safety, you know, aviation issues. And a private pilot who called in about a half mile out to report the five lights in a V, which is what I saw initially before I ran out to take video. So that he did not come forward until 2017. I was gonna to get to that near the end. Um, but the private pilot did come forward finally in 2017. And it happened to be actor Kurt Russell, which is really, <laughs> really cool because he was reporting it while I was filming it. Yeah. <laughs> so I you at the end, but we got that out, out of the way. Way, but um, anyway, any other questions that you had before I get into the rest of the story? Um, just that, um, if I remember correctly, the timeline that I've seen kind of depicted online and such is that it actually started up in Nevada, right? Nope, I'm wrong on that. Didn't start in Nevada. That was the first official report. Okay, was from a police operator. That's what I'm telling you. There is so much more to so the story. And it it could get confusing. That's why ultimately I did come forward with the book so that I could set the record straight. Um, Because so much has come forward, especially in the last 25 years. But um, the the fact was, like I said, it started at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, not 8. Okay. Okay. It started at 3 p.m. in the afternoon in Arizona. There were daylight sightings, very credible uh, reports of that. Five o'clock, there were Native Americans seeing them in um, New Mexico. Oh, and seven o'clock hour, actually, there were reports in California, but the eight o'clock call came from a retired police o- uh, officer in Paulden, Arizona. That was the first official okay. report. And that's, you know, the media grabs on things. And I get it. I get it because most people are outside during the eight to 10 period of time looking up at the sky at the Hellbop Comet when they also saw these unusual UAP and called different places to find out what was going on, including the Phoenix Police Department, who denied that they got any calls. And one of the people in our documentary is is a retired uh, police operator, a 911 police operator who came up to me at a conference and said they said they didn't get many calls. Well, I'm here to tell you they got hundreds of calls. So, I mean, there is a much more to this story. So let me set that record straight. Okay. So, so let me then say, am I right in saying that where it terminated or, or, or stopped, the last sighting was past Tucson? No. <laughs> Wrong again. Well, like I said, if you were, you know, at 5.30 the next morning, 
Um, and, you know, we're, like I said, they, the media and, and then others, of course, grabbed onto that eight to 10 period of time. Okay, um, that is just a, a, a pittance of the mass sighting. Okay, um, five thirty the next morning, and and I got the the report personally from a very credible uh, crewman, uh, Boeing crewman, um, who was coming into the airport with his crew, and one of these massive craft was covering their tarmac. So there's much more to the story, as I said, uh, that have that have um, you know. Uh, come out uh, since the mass sighting, but the media just hooked on to that eight to ten period, and they keep, you know, propagating that, which, uh, in fact, is just a, a little piece of the puzzle. Of That's the mass fantastic. Sighting. Do you want me to go on to tell you what happened afterwards? Yep. Oh yes. Let's okay. go. And I apologize for, for for maybe talking a little quickly, but I wanted to get it, squeeze in a lot uh, for your audience so that they could hear some of this other. Uh, data that people don't know because after the mass sighting there was no investigation there was no explanation it was uncanny I mean this is over people's head a public safety issue okay over the most populated corridor of Arizona and elsewhere right over people's heads um, where you know why aren't they at least addressing it in May former councilwoman vice mayor of Phoenix Francis Barwood innocently she didn't see it but she had over a thousand constituents call her and ask them why why isn't there an investigation she asked for one innocently and she was plastered to the wall there's there's so much uh stickering and ridicule and uh discrediting going on with this topic for decades by the way uh, it's been the modus operandi to keep a lid on it all but um they really plastered her in in the arizona republic and made cartoons and all that um it was very scary to come forward at the time and uh and as the story progressed and that kind of put a lid on it because people were afraid to come forward. Um, on June 18th, and I'm just telling you the major highlights of this so the audience can get it and you can get a feeling for what, what how the story unfolded because it's so, so intriguing in and of itself. On June 18th, 1997, months later, suddenly there is a front page article in USA Today that opened our sighting to international scrutiny. It went viral overnight and we did not have social media then. Yeah. Every national morning show, Peter Jennings, Dan Rather, you name it. And media that talked to the witnesses were saying, oh my goodness, their reports are so detailed and so heartfelt. Why isn't there an investigation? Why isn't there an explanation? For the first time, the morning after, on June 19th, we get a public announcement that former Governor Symington was calling a press conference, an unscheduled press conference for that afternoon to reveal the culprit of the lights over Phoenix. And I was thrilled. I mean, you know, I wanted to find out what, what is going on. He comes marching out one of his aides in a giant alien head costume and made yeah. a mockery of the sighting, which yep. wasn't funny to the people who saw it, particularly mm -hmm. parents who were with children that saw something two and three miles wide and he's making a joke of it. And he also mentioned that people were panicked. No, no. He, he, like I mentioned earlier, if anything, people were in awe and in wonder and, and amazed and excited. No one, no one felt threatened or harmed. Um, but I'm sure the, uh, because as I described, the, the Luke Air Force Base knew what was going on, obviously. Um, the military and government were panicked because they didn't know what to do with this now. It was out in the open for the first time, because before the USA Today article, people outside of Arizona had no idea that this happened here. At any rate, um, after he pulled that, and I did not feel like it was a joke, okay? I really want to get to the bottom of what was going on, whatever it was. Yeah. And I called every military base. I have a few of the conversations in my book that are quite comical. Actually, one of the uh, higher ups uh, they all wanted to meet with me, of course, and I would not do that. Okay, I was totally anonymous, and I certainly didn't want to meet with the military. Um, but one of them said, uh, well, the only ones that know who did this are God and whoever did this. It's like, what? <laughs> okay. Um, a month later, and this is also something that people don't know unless they, they read the book or, or hear, me, hear me speak, is I got a call 
from one of the heads of PR at the Air National Guard. And she says, oh, Dr. Lynn, I think we know what those lights were back in March. And I was thrilled. I was looking for any logical explanation. I said, you do? She says, yes, do you believe that nobody ever looked at the log for visiting Air National Guard? And the Maryland Air National Guard was in town sending off military illumination flares and Operation Snowbird, which, you know, for us living in, in Arizona, we think mm -hmm. Snowbird coming in from out of town. In military terms, Snowbird means diversionary tactical maneuvers. Mm. Okay. So they may have sent off some flares to divert attention away from the true unknowns, but that's not what thousands of people saw right above their heads. Yeah. Right. You know, you don't send off flares on top of people or in, you know, residential areas for sure. I mean, there could be fires and, and uh, you know, it's against the law anyway. So, I mean, uh, and I said to her, well, when was the Maryland Air National Guard in town? She said, March 1st to the 15th. I said, were they in town in January? She said, no. I said, are you sure? She said, absolutely not. I said, well, uh, my husband and I both saw the same exact phenomena appear in the same exact location, confirmed the next morning, both times in January and the morning after the mass sighting by air traffic controllers at Sky Harbor International Airport is hovering over Class B restricted airspace, a thousand feet altitude. And she says, uh, you never told me that because I never gave details, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, besides that, you're trying to tell me that flares, and I had educated myself to military illumination flares, that fall from a jet okay with a with a parachute they fall haphazardly which within seconds cannot keep a formation have huge smoke trails that are illuminated by the flare <laughs> and are meant to illuminate the area around it so that heat-seeking missiles will go to them instead of the aircraft right i said and you're trying to tell me that flares that cannot keep a formation traverse an entire state in a rock-solid, equidistantly spaced, mile-wide V formation for hours? And she says, uh, I have a call coming in. I'll get back to you. <laughs> oh, I'm so worried. five years later. My is like that story. <laughs> but at any rate, oh, my goodness. Um, so that that was like, oh, my, the next day. I mean, in fact, I got off the phone with her. She, she told me who was going to write the article in the Arizona Republic and I called him the net I called him right away and I said I'm sorry to tell you but there is so much more to the story than than flares you can't print that they're flares I mean flares may have been sent off but that's not what that yeah. what hundreds of yeah. thousands of people saw and he said I'm sorry I'm on a deadline I, I can't talk and he hung up the phone the next morning head you know headline news Phoenix lights were flares and it was like oh my goodness okay and so, you know right away people fade in fit into that because the video and and whoever came up with that was brilliant because they could blow off people's stories and say oh they didn't know what they were seeing a mirage or you know whatever they didn't know what they were talking about but they couldn't blow away the handful of videos even yeah. though they don't do yeah. the unknowns justice but whoever came up with that was brilliant because they could be mistaken because they're much smaller and they're white and they flicker for flares. And people just fed right into it, those that didn't see the mass sighting mm -hmm. for some time. Um, but at any rate, it was infuriating <laughs> that I uh, was out there knowing what we knew. At any rate, um, it wasn't until three years later that Frances Barwood, then Councilwoman Phoenix Vice Mayor, mm -hmm. was running for Secretary of State to get answers for, for the lights over Phoenix and asking brilliantly for a reenactment. People don't know about this. Yeah. And yeah. right before the third anniversary, we get a public, a very public announcement on radio and TV, the news, that three Air National Guards were coming into town to show everyone the Phoenix lights. Okay. They must have been practicing for weeks. Um, and I think it was Michigan and New York and California. Anyway, if you go on the news page on the Phoenix Lights Network website and scroll down a little bit, you'll see AZ Family. They were there. I mean, everybody was out in numbers with their cameras on the ready. It Talk about a joke. They tried to make a triangle. It was upside down. Mm. Fell apart mm. immediately. One of the um, things, uh, you know, flares just fizzled out. And a huge smoke trail. I mean, just what flares do, if anything. 
their attempted, their failed attempt to reenact the Phoenix Lights, it put the nail in the coffin for that. Anybody that saw and knows about this. Oh, and yeah. to, to date, the Phoenix Lights have never been recreated or explained, but they're appearing worldwide, by the way. And the other thing is that they have never addressed the craft with gunmetal bottoms. People saw windows with beings mm -hmm. at the windows. Mm -hmm. People got telepathic messages from them. I mean, there's so much more to this story that unfortunately we won't have time to get into, but I wanted to just fast forward again. And right after the 10th anniversary, of the mass sighting, for whatever reason, former Governor Sivington, who mocked the sighting in 97, came forward to divulge and disclose that he actually saw, he witnessed one of these mile-wide craft, over mile-wide. Yep. And as an awarded uh, military pilot, not only did he confirm that it was definitely not flares, it was a craft, but the word he used is also used worldwide 20 other countries at least are much more open to these phenomena as being real and not of this world. They call them, as he did, otherworldly. Okay, otherworldly. And um, that was really a huge step forward. He was very brave to, for whatever reason, that he did that. Um, it really opened the case up to a ne next step of credibility. Anybody of credibility that comes forward and that's one of the reasons that I came forward to, if I can be a small voice so that people actually look at the data and listen as we're doing today and being able to share it, um, then I've done my job. So I really appreciate you you guys letting me do that. And then of course, uh, in 2017, um, right after front page New York Times, I don't know if people out there are realize this, there was a front page New York Times article that finally the cat was out of the bag, that the Pentagon was actually studying it. Harry Reid had funded a $22 million um, project to investigate military and, um, uh, you know, uh, UFOs, UAP, they call them now. Yeah. So right shortly after that is when Kurt Russell also came forward to say that he was that private pilot. And some of the other little ancillary things, and then um, hopefully we'll be able to take questions, unless you have something now, because there's another really intriguing aspect of this whole thing. <laughs> go for it. No, go just it. keep okay. going, keep going. One of the things he mentions, and, and we have his uh, UK interview, which is really excellent um, on the website. And he mentions that he was coming into Sky Harbor with his son and his son first noticed the V of six lights. And it's interesting that children were the first usually to notice the Phoenix lights and alerted their parents to it. But be, that being said, um, and afterwards they didn't talk about it at all. And two years later, he came home and Goldie Hawn was watching a uh, show about the Phoenix lights on TV. And he started listening and they talked about pilots calling into the tower and he thought wait a minute it was like a richard dreyfus moment like <laughs> know this you know and he goes and he looks at his log and lo and behold there it was he he was the pilot that that actually called in the private pilot that called into the tower um that interesting aspect he wasn't alone there were a number of other people including a psychiatrist that was coming up from tucson to Phoenix for a uh, swim meet and he was in the passenger seat and the craft was right above them, a craft. And the wings, he said, were on either side of I-10. I mean, way out into the fields. Wow. It was massive. And he really got a, a tremendous look at it. He is working with me. And uh, we have a team of, of uh, several of us that are working on a study now. If anyone had seen the Phoenix Lights, please contact me. You can contact me um, on the top of the homepage. There is a link that goes right to my email, please. We are looking for people. A lot of people have moved or they've passed. Mm. I mean, it's 25 mm -hmm. years. Um, that we are looking for as many people as we can that have seen the Phoenix Lights, but you don't have to see the Phoenix Lights to do the study. As if you're just interested 
interested in it, if you've read about it, if you've seen the documentary, which we're very proud, as you can see behind yeah. me, we've won over yeah. the International Film Festival Awards and it's on Amazon Prime. I think you can still get it for free there, but it's streaming there and also free on Tubi, T-U-B-I, Tubi. Mm -hmm. But of course the book, The Phoenix Lights, A Skeptic's Discovery That We Are Not Alone is in its fourth print, okay? Because wow. I did not read another book. I pushed my whole medical career aside for seven years to try to find a logical explanation for what I witnessed and photographed, I have yet to find it. If anything, it opened up a whole new world to me. There is such a history of these phenomena, which we go into from human when human documentation started recording in primitive caves. I mean, there are <laughs> um, animals that are long extinct with what we would call UFO today. And so the Marian writings and India writings and even the Bible, Ezekiel's wheel, and you fast forward to 15th and 16th centuries, there's um, uh, frescoes and paintings mm. of people on the ground looking up at the sky yep. uh, at a UFO, we would call a UFO with beings in the UFO. And you fast forward to World War II, Foo Fighters, okay, these same orbs. And I was told by Dr. Richard Haynes, who analyzed my data, as well as other university and, and military optical experts. Um, and he was the head of NARCAP, which was where pilots give their reports. And there's thousands of pilots that have seen things. And he said that the orbs that we saw outside our window that were in a rock solid pyramid formation, very similar to what they call Foo Fighters, not the band, but these orbs that were around each uh, each side thought the other side had advanced technology and it wasn't until after the war that Japan and Germany and the United States tried to find out who had them and no one could. And you know, you fast forward again to the uh, late 80s and the early 90s, we have um, Belgium who's a model for what should happen. They got together with university and uh, civilians and military and uh, government uh, to try to analyze the UAP, UAP that they were seeing, uh, as well as Hudson Valley and Stephenville. I mean, it's happening worldwide. Yeah. And uh, at any rate, so there's a, a vast history of, of these phenomena since human documentation began. Um, the other thing that was really interesting, and, and um, you know, we're trying to quantify how it affected people with this scientific study. But the other side is that a number of people, including a psychiatrist, had a near-death experience as a child, childhood near-death experience that was reawakened by the mass sighting. This is a whole nother avenue that really got to me because I did too. We won't have time to get into it, but I lay it all out there in the book um, that changed my life forever. I mean, I thought everybody was psychic and empathic yeah. and uh, knew that we were not alone. But at any rate, um, I thought, geez, because this is not about me. This is about uh, the data. And when I met, even when I met with the MUFON guy, he said to me that NBC was coming to interview him in a half an hour. And I said, whoa, I'm out of here. I don't know if we're dealing with a hoax or military or whatever, but it's not about me. It's about the data. And I gave him a copy of the video, which ended up on every news station <laughs> <laughs> that afternoon. But I thought, geez, could there be a connection between all unexplained phenomena, whether it's near-death experience, out-of-body experience, unexplained aerial phenomena that have a mystical light associated with the experience? And lo and behold, when I started looking at university level, I started finding very credible data. The Omega Project, which is like four inches thick by Dr. Kenneth Ring. That's the whole book is about the connection. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. John Mack mm -hmm. at Harvard right. also was in, a, in the book, in my book, I make it very, very simple. What blew me away is that whatever the unexplained phenomena, whether it's near-death experience, out-of-body or unexplained aerial phenomena, the experience is very similar when you really lay it all out there. Yep. But most is the after effect, the positive awakening, the enlightenment. And it's not woo-woo. I mean, this happens to people and that's what we're studying. And we're finding confirmation for the fact that the Phoenix Lights, UAP, whatever they are, whoever is behind it, is touching people one person at a time and waking them up, not only to their presence in a very gentle, non-threatening way, but waking us up. There's a very important message here 
to what we're doing to ourselves and our planet before it's too late. And people from near-death experience come back with the same message. It's it's unbelievable when you really look at it. And, they, and it changes people forever. It's not a belief anymore in all of this. It's a knowing. Yep. So in that half my is, is about this, and I really get into the to the study because I want to make it as credible as I can, and and really, um, you know, trying to find a prosaic answer for this, which it's still a, a wonderful mystery. Um, but the story continues to unfold. So the original book is there, even though it's in its fourth print. And I recommend the ebook to people because it has color pictures and lives like some <laughs> years on the reality of vital health issues that's what's so ironic because ultimately after much soul searching because i did not want to come forward i squeezed a 750 page journal to 230 pages um and i just couldn't stick it in a drawer just to set the strict set the record straight alone was important because there was so much missing disinformation still that people are getting so you know thank you for for letting me and uh, I squeezed a lot in, I know. Yeah, I no, it's for- great. No, and no, I was going to say, I was going to say, I was lucky enough to go to the 25th anniversary showing of the doc. So I was able to get my autographed oh, copy of the book, which I adore. So I was very thankful. Oh, and and to see all the people that spoke and everything like that was just absolutely phenomenal. And it, it, it changed my whole opinion uh, on Phoenix Lights. And that was such an amazing event. And I'm glad that you put that on for us folks here uh, to be able to see that. And I'm glad I got to be a part of that. Oh, that's wonderful. Every year, by the way, for anybody out there that's in the Phoenix area or Arizona, people come from Sedona and Tucson, yeah. it's sold out every year. It's been, of course, with COVID, we had to cut back a little bit. But um, it, we really try, I mean, I think it's really important to keep it not only alive, but to get the real information out there and to have a place mainly for people to go because it's a mainstream event, as you saw right i mean it's not a ufo event it's a mainstream event where people who've either seen it or are curious or have heard about it can come and discuss it openly without feeling that ridicule or that um you know you can you can we can open open this up to discussion we show the documentary as you saw and then we have speakers and wonderful speakers and we i work with the navajo rangers who were there um as well because there's a lot going on up mm-hmm. there and they had a sighting by the way yep. the day before our sighting of these orbs going around in circles and they're so open to it and they see things all the time including beings by the way that they just brought out their lawn chairs and enjoyed it for an hour <laughs> i mean they thought that would be big news and then our you know sighting of course eclipsed it and then we have a Q&A. And as you saw, once we get started and once they see the documentary and it opens people up to at least open their mind and heart, which is the first big step to talk about it. Um, boy, the questions keep flowing and flowing. We literally have to close it down, right? And, yep. and turn the lights on and on so that um, every year. So I invite people around the March 13th, usually the weekend after, um, you know, go on the website, uh, Phoenix Lights Network website, we'll announce it in plenty of time so you can get your ticket. Um, you know, we welcome everyone to, to come and enjoy an event that uh, is really rare. I mean, that, that we can do this for the community. It's a community, annual community event. So I'm so glad you were there. Yes, it was fantastic. Well, Dr. Katai, that's our time. And I just wanted to say thank you again so much for spending this time with us. Um, What an absolute pleasure. And it is just an honor to have you on our show and to be able to hear the, the, you know, the words come from your mouth. Well, it's an honor to be with you guys and to share with your audience. And again, there is much more to the story and many more serendipities. I'll leave you with this. Did you see the movie Raising Arizona or anyone out there see the movie Raising Arizona? Well, I played the mother. Don't say you recognize me. <laughs> I, I only know because I've looked into it. That's the only reason I knew. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Well, the, the another serendipity for anybody that's seen the movie or that cares to uh, by the Cohen brothers. And it's an iconic film mm-hmm. with Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter and George Goodman. Uh, I'm sorry, John Goodman and um, uh, Francis McDormand. I mean, it, it's such a film. It's, it's a black comedy where one the... Um, uh, Nicholas Cage and Holly Hunter, and I'll make this fast, uh, cannot conceive. So they uh, decide to kidnap one of the uh, Arizona quintuplets. And um, and again, it's a black comedy. Um, and after they have a press conference, in fact, it's in front of the Jacoki Inn at the Phoenician Resort. Mm-hmm. That was, 
And one of the record, reporters sticks a microphone in my husband's face and says, there's a rumor that your son was abducted by UFOs. Is there any truth to that? <laughs> uh, my husband says, oh, please, son, please don't print that. If his mama reads that, she'll lose all hope, which is amazing because it's the only reference in the entire film to UFOs 10 years. It came out in 87, wow. 10 years before the mass sighting in 97, and it gets better. The cinematographer, who was just getting started, just like many of the stars were in the film, went on to do big with Tom Hanks and when Harry Met Sally with Billy Crystal and How the West Was Won and Adam's Family and a whole bunch of others. Also, you ready? Created and directed the Men in Black series, which wow. opened, Barry Sonnenfeld, which opened in 1997, the same year as the Phoenix Lights mass sighting. Another little coincidence? Yeah, really. I think not. <laughs> um, <laughs> so for anybody who wants to read the book, uh, get the documentary, see the photos that you spoke about, uh, everything else, it's thephoenixlights.net. Is that correct? Did the I get Phoenix one right? Lights, yes, thephoenixlights.net. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yes, on the on the homepage, there's links directly to to Amazon and uh, and also, like I said, Tubi has it for free. I love now, Tubi. Yeah. Um, yeah, for free. And we'll have and this we link. Also... Oh, yeah. go ahead. I was just to say we'll have the no, link I, as I... well here uh, if you're reading uh, on Facebook or anywhere. Uh, the link is there to to click as well. Oh, that's great. And we now also, because I'm working on a curriculum to try to get it into the classroom, um, we also have a graphic novel activities coloring book. Yes, I love that. Class. It is amazing. I mean, when I take it to a conference, it's hard to, to realize what's in it. It's 160 pages of amazing pictures and the, the uh, 10 crafts to scale and 80 crop circles to color and uh, activities, word finders and, and all kinds of crossword puzzles for everyone. I wanted the teachers to have something in the classroom, which they are using, as well as parents and grandparents with their kids to uh, do together and learn together. And we have iconic historic pictures in there. It's pretty cool. So I hope people will pick that up as well. Awesome. Well, well, thank you so much, Dr. Kataya. You are welcome back on our show anytime. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And keep looking up. And now you know it's a double entendre. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Kataya. That was absolutely phenomenal. Please, guys, go check out her book, the documentary, yep. and all that stuff. It is absolutely phenomenal. If you're in the Phoenix area, every March, you can watch the documentary with her and a whole bunch of folks like me and Josh. Um, yeah. But we want to remind you guys, this was our season finale. We are going to be taking an extended break. Uh, like I said, there's going to be some re-releases of some older episodes just to keep your appetite wet, um, as well as uh, some, maybe a bonus episode here or there, depending if Josh and I are feeling froggy. Um, but we're changing gears next season. We're going to be talking about Dark Appalachia, man. We're yep. going to be talking about West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, up to the Hudson Valley, all kinds of crazy stuff. We're going to be again. Hitting... Right. With the with the idea that these are convergences, right, that we're looking mm -hmm. at everything, all parts, all aspects of the phenomena to to really understand is there some common thread is there some underlying you know event that triggers these things to start happening and why is there why yeah why with. is there so much paranormal activity in the appalachians why right that's what we're going to be researching and we want you guys to join us in the research yeah. uh and the best way you can do that is by joining our uh patreon called the uh, Provenience Obscura Society. Join the society today, help us research. We can give you some tasks or you can come to us with some leads if you know people that have stories of anything paranormal in the Appalachians or near the Appalachians, uh, whether it be a cult, whether it be Sasquatch, cryptid, uh, UFO, ghost related, anything, a yep. demon related. I, we're going to be talking to, we're going to be talking to Ward Heine that did uh, Dark Holler. I mean, we're, we're hitting all kinds of stuff, guys. We're going to be hitting yep. all the stuff in West Virginia, Mothman, all that stuff. So please reach out to us uh, on there. Join our Patreon, patreon.com slash the sea enigma and there you can join there's two versions you can just be a supporter if you just want to financially support us and that's all you want to do hands off there's a level for you uh, or if you want a more hands-on there's another level there and and that's what we're doing so please please sign up there yep and thanks again for everybody who for listening for sticking with us we're going into our fifth season and it's going to be amazing 
At least that's what we hope. Yeah. I know JD misses he misses everybody. Uh we're gonna re-release his uh nightmare not nightmare, but it <laughs> was the night before Cryptid. It was mess. a nightmare. Every time he was on. Was <laughs> hey man, I just wanna say hi. <laughs> that's my impression of, of the Jersey Devil, but he's there. He's always he's always there, Josh. He's always there. But thank you guys <laughs> yeah. so much for an amazing season four, man. Thank you guys so much for listening and sharing. And those of you that are already on our uh, old Patreon and supporting us as long as you have, we're so thankful for you guys. Um, and uh, and just know, I mean, there's still some wristwatch stuff out there that we haven't shared yet that may pop up as well during all of this. So mm-hmm, just a sprinkling yeah. a little sunshine there for those of you that were still interested in following that story. Uh, but Josh, we got to get out of here, man. So uh, thank Thank you guys so much for tuning in to season four of the Convergence Enigma. Uh, this has been Stefan with a reminder to keep your eyes on the skies. And this has been Josh. The truth is now. Ooh, still gives me goosebumps. And remember, folks, keep questioning, keep searching. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>